Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, we have Dustin Crummett re returning to us. Um, his last episode was on the ethics of eating meat, and now we're going to be talking about uh, the ethics of COVID. Uh, Dustin, would you like to th start with a thought experiment? Suppose it turned out <clears throat> that uh, the only realistic way uh, to get through the pandemic was through something like infection-acquired herd immunity. Just enough people uh, get infected, and therefore enough people are immune that the uh, uh, spread of the disease kind of peters out, right? Um, uh, and, you know, you're not going to be able, I mean, suppose it would take several years to get a vaccine or something like that, then uh, you're not going to be able to have lockdowns for that entire time. So at some point, you're just going to have to, maybe you'll have kind of intermittent lockdowns, or maybe uh, you'll do something like what the U.S. has done now and just give up and kind of let it spread or whatever. Um, in, in a situation like that, in a situation where the way out is through uh, acquired herd immunity, um, the question is, uh, is it better to just let the disease naturally infect people? Or would it be better to uh, implement what's called controlled voluntary infection? Um, so uh, you would go, you would give, you know, some, some form of informed consent, whatever the standards for that are. Um, the doctor would intentionally give you uh, some COVID uh, with the aim of uh, you getting infected, hopefully becoming immune afterwards, right? Uh, we would do this for people who were at comparatively low risk, so you have a better chance of survival. Why would you do this? Well, it might be good kind of on the social level. Uh, it could help you end the pandemic sooner, reach herd immunity faster. Um, it might sort of even out the infection curve if you did this during off-peak times when the medical system isn't overwhelmed. Um, it can ensure that the people who get infected uh, in order to reach the herd immunity threshold are people who are less likely to have severe complications. So that would be good uh, on the societal level. It also might be good for you as an individual. Um, you might be uh, exempted from lockdowns. You might be so I, I live with my elderly landlord. If you did this and then could stay somewhere else until after you had uh, recovered, then you would know that you weren't going to infect these other people who are vulnerable around you. Uh, you would know when you got infected, so you would know what to look for. You could get medical treatment right away, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, in a situation uh, like this, it might be um, uh, socially good uh, to offer controlled voluntary infection. It might also be good for the individual, at least for some individuals, to go and get voluntarily infected, depending on how risk sensitive they are and so on. Um, and yet a lot of people think that this idea just seems sort of ethically off the wall. Um, there's got to be something wrong with it. Um, so the question is, uh, I guess, uh, would it make sense for you as an individual to go and get voluntarily infected and would it make sense for doctors to offer this, for a government to have a policy of promoting this, et cetera? So it's a fascinating thought experiment because something similar has been suggested, uh, which is what people call challenge trials. And this is where you infect people um, voluntarily and purposely, intentionally with COVID, but you give them a vaccine and it's a way to, to test the validity of the vaccine. Um, your, your suggestion is more, um, is bolder. Um, your suggestion is to infect people regardless of whether they're receiving a vaccine. It's not to test the vaccine, it's just to, to, to give them the infection so they recover and they're immune. And so you're assuming that immunity lasts. Um, so, I mean, that is an interesting question where the immunity does last and there's, you know, more and more data coming out about that. And my understanding is that the data is quite unclear, right? So on the one hand, there's less immunity than we thought. On the other hand, there's more in certain ways. So perhaps we don't produce the kind of antibodies we thought we would produce, but we might have other reactions that are good like killer T cells. So let's put that aside for a moment. Um, I'm wondering whether the reason why people react badly to this kind of suggestion and say there must be some kind of ethical problem um, is perhaps they're thinking about something along the lines of justice as, a, as an analogy. So in the criminal justice system, imagine we had a um, kind of a principle that could in principle decide whether someone was guilty or innocent um, and it got it right 90% of the time. Okay, so 90% of the time it sent the right people to prison and 10% of the time it didn't. 
So perhaps there's some innocent people that would be sent to prison, but overall it got it right 90% of the time. I wonder whether there's, we would think in that kind of situation that that kind of justice system would be problematic if it was some kind of computerized in principle solution to the problem, kind of an automated jail people who, who we think did X, Y, Z for these reasons. I wonder whether there's not a similar problem here. We think that it's a problem when you send even one innocent person to prison. Um, perhaps there's one person who you infect with COVID voluntarily um, and intentionally who wouldn't have been infected but dies. Um, I wonder whether there's not a similar kind of objection here that if, even, if, even if you save a bunch of people, um, even if just one dies unnecessarily, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that is uh, at least a big part of what the worry people have is. Um, even if this saves lives on balance, it may result in some people dying who wouldn't have died otherwise. And furthermore, not only are they dying and they wouldn't have died otherwise, but they're dying because you did something. You, know, you didn't just allow them to die, you infected them intentionally. Um, so I think, I think that's, the, that's the source of the worry. Um, so what, what I want to argue in this paper that's coming out in bioethics is um, set aside kind of the, the, empirical, the empirical angle here. Um, you know, I don't know whether this would be a good policy decision. Like I said, there are some ways, you know, good progress has been made on vaccines and stuff. There are some ways that um, I think the empirical side of the proposal has become weaker over time as we've learned more. Um, but in terms of just this in-principle ethical consideration, what I want to say is uh, that sort of in-principle ethical objection uh, doesn't work. So I want to say if it would be good sort of consequentially, uh, then it would be uh, ethically fine to implement the policy. Um, why, why I think that, I guess I sort of give three, uh, three main arguments. Um, one is just an argument from informed consent uh, in general, in medicine, we think that uh, if you give informed, uncoerced, et cetera, et cetera, uh, consent to something, then even if it's somewhat risky, even if it might wind up uh, harming you where you wouldn't have been harmed, then that makes it okay. Uh, there are certain limits to that, maybe. We can talk about those, but uh, I try to argue uh, those limits or the, the defeating factors probably aren't present here. So if you want to do this, you understand the risks, you want to do it either out of pro-social motives or, you know, for some kind of self-interested reason, then that sort of defeats the, uh, your, your consent, your autonomous consent, sort of defeats the reason we would have not to do it. Um, uh, a second one is uh, a variation on this argument that's given by Casper Hare, uh, who's a philosopher at MIT. Um, so, Casper uh, Hare wants to argue that in situations exactly with this structure, um, you're going to take a course of action, it's going to help more people than it hurts, but because you don't know who it's going to help and who it's going to hurt, it, it's going to help more people than it hurts. It's going to hurt some people who wouldn't have been hurt. Uh, and because you don't know who's going to be helped and who's going to be hurt, uh, expected utility for everyone is increased even based on the information available to you, even though some people are going to be hurt who in fact wouldn't have been. Um, so uh, Hare has these very convoluted uh, thought experiments where um, if you think about say the, the ordinary trolley case, uh, I'm going to flip the switch and the trolley will hit someone or I have to push someone in front of a trolley and they'll die. Uh, some people think you can't do that because you're killing a person even though you, you're saving more lives, right? Um, Hare uh, gives these variations where the people are all in like uh, sort of luggage trunks uh, and you don't know who's located in which place. Uh, so I know that uh, if I push, I know that uh, you know, Mark is in one of their five suitcases on the track, one suitcase on the footbridge. I can push the luggage trunk and slow down the trolley and save the five people on the track. I know that Mark is in one of these six suitcases, but I don't know which one. And I know that Jason is in one of these six suitcases, but I don't know which one. And so I think, uh, look, if I uh, push, then uh, there's a one-sixth chance that I kill Jason, but there's a five-sixth chance that I save Jason. And so I, acting uh, in the interests of each person, uh, can implement this policy, even though I know that someone will be hurt. 
and Hare has some other arguments for why you should, that should be your diagnosis in this case. Um, if it's the case that uh, expected benefits to the people who volunteer are positive, um, in fact, some people will get unlucky and have severe complications or die. But in general, going in, you have accurately judged that this is likely to be a good thing for you on balance, taking the risks into account and so on. Um, then I want to argue it, it may be similar to the, the hair type case. Some people are, in fact, going to be hurt uh, who wouldn't have been hurt, but everyone's expected interests are increased, and that makes it all right. The third argument I give is what I call uh, an argument from precedent. Um, so uh, people used to practice uh, what was called variolation, um, which was uh, infecting people with a, a less virulent strain of smallpox so that they could get over it, have immunity, um, not catch a worse version of smallpox later on, hopefully. Um, some small percentage of people uh, for whom this was done died. Um, presumably some of those people wouldn't have died uh, otherwise. Maybe they never would have caught smallpox at all. Um, but we knew that this increased your chance of survival uh, uh, going in, right? Um, and and uh, we also knew that it saved most lives on balance. Um, and even though uh, clearly that was a bad situation to be in where this is your best option, this was before um, smallpox vaccination, uh, nonetheless, we typically think that there wasn't some big in-principle ethical problem uh, with doing that. Uh, but I want to say that given certain empirical assumptions, you might be in a situation that's analogous uh, to that with regard to COVID or uh, some other you know, future pandemic. Um, so I want to talk a bit about that first case of the informed uh, consent in the medical setting. So it seems to arise in two, con two cases. The first is, let's say you have a severe disease and the doctor says to you, look, there's an experimental treatment um, which we can give you to cure your disease. It may work, it may not work. Um, there's some uncertainty about it, um, but you can take the experimental therapy um, and maybe you'll get the benefit of um, being cured of disease. Maybe you're going to get some pernicious side effects we haven't seen. And so you've got some level of information, you've got some missing knowledge, uh, but you've got a health benefit. In other words, you'll be cured of the thing. The other case would be, um, we say to you, look, um, you don't have a disease, but we want to find out if we can give you this um, treatment um, or this um, exposure to something uh, so we can help develop a cure for the sake of others. So you're like a, a test subject in a lab and we sort of give you some information about what we think will happen to you. Again, we don't really know all the, all the cases. Um, and, uh, and those are the sort of, primary case, we say it's okay to do this provided the person uh, consents. I suppose what I wonder with here is the, the benefit to the person is, is um, it's definitely not curing anything. We're guaranteeing you that you're going to get COVID. Okay. And uh, if you just, you know, locked yourself up in your room until the vaccine arrived, until the pandemic was over, you wouldn't get it. Okay? But what you're getting is something else, assuming that you've got some kind of immunity you've got the, the freedom of an ordinary citizen to carry on about your life. So you get that kind of benefit, but it's not a medical benefit. Um, the other one is really the sort of benefit for others. In other words, uh, if you get sufficient herd immunity, uh, then the virus peters out. Um, it doesn't have enough people to infect. Um, and therefore it is to the benefit of people who are vulnerable, who if they got it would, uh, uh, would have a high likelihood of dying. Um, and it seems like we're really much more in that second case. Um, I suppose one of the concerns about any of these kind of consent is what degree of information is necessary. So how much do we require our subjects to know before we take their yes seriously? Um, and are there certain things where we say, well, maybe the person in principle cannot know certain things. So for example, um, in the early stage of the pandemic, it wasn't clear to us how much of a risk uh, hypertension is. A lot of people have hypertension on its own. It doesn't seem to um, pose many health risks. You're not going to die of hypertension. But hypertension plus COVID, you know, your mortality risk goes up quite significantly. Um, so how much do we want our subjects to know before we say you can participate? Um, mm -hmm. Right. So um, I think there are two sort of two two issues that come up there. One is about what, what are the person's reasons for wanting uh, to do this? The other one is this more general question maybe about the standards for informed consent. 
Um, so regarding the, the first set, um, so we can distinguish, maybe they have kind of uh, general altruistic reasons for wanting to do it. They wanna to contribute to ending the pandemic sooner or something. Um, maybe they have non-medical reasons for wanting to do it, or maybe they have medical reasons for wanting to do it. Um, so, uh, and I, I think that any of those could be okay, basically is gonna be the answer. So uh, maybe they have altruistic motives. Um, it's a little hard to think of many other medical cases apart from infectious diseases where you would have altruistic reasons for wanting to undergo a medical procedure or something just because your health is mostly sort of independent from that of other people. Um, there may be some, but and there are also other cases where we agree that people can sort of willingly undertake risks for the sake of other people. Um, you can, you know, become a, a firefighter or something, even if that uh, imposes certain risks on you. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe if the risk uh, of death by COVID, say, was too extreme, you would think that people can't legitimately do that or something. Uh, but at least if you're sort of a young, otherwise healthy person, you know, that's probably not the case, I think. Um, a second case, uh, I mean, suppose that they want to do it for non-medical reasons. Well, we do let people um, consent to uh, medical procedures in order to get non-medical benefits. So lots of elected, elective surgeries are like this, if you want uh, you know, uh, uh, some sort of plastic surgery or something. Um, and I actually talk in the paper, there are some plastic surgeries that um, you know, are offered that likely have a higher risk of death than does uh, being infected by COVID for a young and healthy person. Um, the, the third issue, medical reasons, I mean, it could be, depending on the situation, uh, it could be that you actually do have some medical reasons uh, for wanting to consent to controlled voluntary infection. So um, in the herd immunity situation, if it looks like a pretty substantial portion of the population is going to get it anyway, eventually, um, and maybe particularly suppose you work in, you know, you're, you're an essential worker and you have to go in and interact with people. You might realize at that point that at some point you're pretty likely to get it uh, anyway. Um, and if that's right, then it might be safer for you to get it in some sort of controlled environment where we can give you the minimum dose needed to produce an immune response, uh, can observe you, you'll, again, you'll be able to get uh, treatment right away because you'll know what it is and so on. Um, so it may be that there are even medical reasons that people, you know, personal medical reasons that people would want to consent. Um, so the, the second issue was about what the, the standards for informed consent. How much information do we feel is necessary for the person to have informed consent? Because there's different kinds of consent. There's just the raising my hand where I say, I agree. And there's raising my hand after I've understood, well, let's say read all the terms and conditions. And then the third is once I, you've checked that I actually understand. So you might think that given that there's a risk of my death, that the degree of information is going to be quite important. And you might think that I've got to be a certain sort of person. So um, you might think, for example, I can't be a child, um, that a child can't really uh, come to grips with the risk um, and know, know what those risks are and reconcile um, themselves to it. Um, you might think that I've got to have, um, let's say, a certain level of, of intellect and um, that you couldn't do this on someone who was... Um, let's say either very emotionally damaged, someone who was, let's say, highly depressed or highly anxious or someone who was intellectually incapacitated, um, that they have to have this ability to truly reflect on the consequences. Um, the other kinds might be the kind of coercion cases. So maybe you've got someone who says, well, I do work in this industry where um, I, if, if I'm not immune, I'm going to lose my job. Um, and other people who are immune, who've gone through it, are able to work because they kind of, you know, don't, aren't posing risk to others. And so as much as I wouldn't like to get COVID, I'll do it because there are these coercive financial reasons on me. Or my employer is coercing me and saying, if you don't go through this, you're fired. Um, so those are the things that might start to undermine consent. Um, and then there's the knowledge of um, what COVID is going to do to you as well, in which there's some sense in which we maybe have more information over time is there some point where we go, well, you have sufficient information. You might never know all of it, um, but there's, you know, we can try and give you as much as we know. How do we draw those parameters about what constitutes sufficiently informed consent? Right. Good. Yeah. So regarding the first point, I think there definitely are um, 
certain, I mean, so we don't let children consent to things, though we do let sometimes their parents or guardians consent on their behalf to certain things, right? Um, I, I agree, children probably should not be intentionally infected uh, with COVID. Um, otherwise, yeah, there are certain standards you need to meet in terms of mental competence, um, maybe in terms of demonstrating that you understand the relevant information and so on. Um, I'm inclined to think that those are, I mean, there's sort of broader problems that come up regarding informed consent and medical ethics generally, uh, whether you're consenting to an experimental treatment or an elective surgery or whatever. Um, and so uh, I think that I can just sort of adopt whatever the best account of that is generally. Um, now, this second worry uh, was about sort of, um, could this create social, uh, social conditions where people are uh, sort of coerced into consenting? Um, and this, this, I think, is a, a quite serious worry. And it may, the controlled voluntary infection case might sort of raise special issues um, depending on how things play out. Um, so you feel like uh, in order to keep your employment or maybe to get a new job or something, um, you know, under conditions where lots of people are employed and so on, uh, maybe you need, you feel like you need to consent to this because employers want people who are immune or something like this. Okay. Um, so I guess I want to say a couple things. Um, one is that uh, you, I think you want anyway, particularly under conditions like those in which we currently find ourselves, where a lot of people are going to be unemployed no matter what. Um, you want to make sure, just as a matter of political justice, uh, that there are sufficient provisions made for unemployed people that uh, being unemployed for the next while is not some kind of unbearable, uh, unbearable state, right? Um, you want that regardless of whether you're going to do controlled voluntary infection. Um, but if you have that, then people might not be coerced into it because, well, being unemployed for a while won't, won't be unbearable, right? Um, second, I mean, suppose that due to political failure or whatever else, you don't have those provisions made. Um, there's a question about whether offering people um, I, I guess, yeah, so maybe, maybe this is the way to frame it. So now we say, okay, being unemployed is kind of an unbearable condition, um, and people are going to feel like they have to be, uh, they have to consent to infection uh, in order to avoid this unbearable condition. Um, uh, so they, they won't really have a choice about taking this option. So now what we're going to do is take the option away, and now your only option is the unbearable condition. Uh, well, gosh, that didn't do you any favors, right? Um, so, uh, you know, there, there might seem to be something perverse about that. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute, though, because we're talking about big policy issues, um, what your set of options are can be affected in other ways. So maybe if you don't offer controlled voluntary infection, you would be able to get a job uh, otherwise, right? Because uh, suppose uh, once you offer controlled voluntary infection, then employers can say, ah, you have to go get infected, so you're immune. Uh, if you didn't do that, then they, there wouldn't be enough people who were immune for them to say that, you know, they couldn't make their current employees go get infected and they don't want to try to hire new people or whatever. Um, so it might create a situation where you're threatened with the bad outcome uh, precisely because we implemented this policy. And that seems, that seems worse, right? Because now we've, uh, we've forced you into this situation where the, you have this uh, unbearable alternative. Um, uh, I think what I want to say about that is... Um, First of all, I mean, it, it might be worth looking. I mean, first of all, yes, you should make unemployment not be unbearable. Um, second of all, it might be worth looking into if you're very worried about this possibility, whether it would be worth, you know, uh, banning legal discrimination on the basis of immunity and employment or something like that. Um, third, I mean, suppose you just, uh, you can't do any of that. Um, you know, your political system is too dysfunctional. Um, you might still wonder, okay, if people wind up in this situation where they're going to lose their job uh, if they aren't immune, uh, losing their job is unbearable, and you don't let them uh, get infected in some sort of medical setting, well, then you create situations where people have incentives to just go try to get infected anyway, 
right? But maybe under conditions where it will be less safe, where they won't know that they're infected, they might spread it to other people and so on. Um, so it may be um, that even in this sort of worst of all worlds where you failed at all these other uh, stages in making policy, um, this would be maybe something on, on the lines of like a harm mitigation, you know, needle exchange strategy or something like that. You would rather people didn't do this, but the alternative is that they're going to do it in a less safe way. So maybe you should still make it available to them. Um, so I, I think that this is a serious, a serious uh, set of worries, and particularly because of the way that it interacts with other policy questions, with other broader economic questions, and so on. But something like that's what I want to say uh, about about that. Uh, I think it's interesting you brought up the needle exchange because as you were speaking, I thought uh, these issues parallel in certain ways. I haven't thought it right through, but it seems there's very interesting parallels to deliberately giving heroin addicts. Um, a space where they can go and shoot up. Um, I, th I, th I think that's interesting. I mean, there's going to be some dissimilarities as well. Um, yeah, something that, that's coming to mind as you're speaking is that there seems like there's two types of considerations that are entering the discussion. So the one is what are the consequences or the utility involved? In other words, what will benefit society as a whole and the person involved? Um, but the other type of consideration is consent and the reasons why the person who volunteers to go and get the infection would get the infection. And I was wondering which of those matters. Now, let me, let, me, let me explain why that's a problem. So suppose you think the utility is what matters, right? Then let's do away with consent altogether and look at a case like deliberately infecting a small town right? So let's say you've got this huge wave of infections across your country and you decide, well, the best way for me to handle this as the government would be to deliberately infect small pockets and isolate them. And I can manage the infections in those small pockets. I've got enough hospital capacity, but I won't let it spill out into other pockets. And as soon as that pocket's recovered, I'll infect the next and the next and the next. Okay. And perhaps you have like a roaming hospital team. Um, that seems problematic, right? You wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want to put in the water supply for the town. Um, if the utility is all that counts, then it seems like you could do that, right? And you should do that, but that seems problematic. Then if you go the other route and you say, well, the reasons why someone, someone uh, uh, gets infected, um, well, well that, that is all that counts, um, it's not the utility involved. It's just the reasons why. Um, then, then that seems problematic as well, because it seems someone, even with reasons that we don't really like, um, if they say they want to get infected, uh, it seems like we should let them get infected, right? Um, it seems like, you know, let's say they want to get infected because it's fun, okay? Um, perhaps they're, they're taking bets with their friends, uh, you know, who's going to get the sickest. Um, and and they, they're all taking it very lightly and jokingly, incorrectly so, but suppose that's what they're doing. Uh, do you have the right to stop them from doing so? Um, assuming that what actually happens, then the expected utility and the actual utility is all positive. So, you know, they all turn out to be fine and we can expect that they all would be fine. They're all young, healthy people. Um, even if they have bad reasons for wanting to get infected, doesn't it seem like we should let them? Um, so, so my concern is, is it the utility that's playing the role? Is it uh, consent that's playing the role? And uh, in either case, there's a problem. If you combine the two and you say it must be both consent and utility, well, then I start to get a bit uncomfortable and icky because, well, I'm a utilitarian and I don't really care about consent. And then you get the Kantians who only care about consent, but not utility. And what kind of hybrid theory would we need in order to accommodate both? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I am... I mean, I guess tacitly, maybe in the background, assuming some sort of hybrid theory, according to which uh, good policy will promote overall welfare, but will do it within certain side constraints that um, have to do with not violating individual autonomy, maybe except in order to, uh, you know, avoid certain catastrophes or whatever. Um, so that's, that's the sort of hybrid view. I, I do, I would hope that... Um, I mean, at, at least if, if we take the, the fundamentally utilitarian view, um, 
then you'll think, okay, consent doesn't matter in and of itself, but it still may matter insofar as respecting consent is important to promoting utility. Um, if you go around uh, infecting whole towns of people who don't want to be infected, then um, it seems likely to, th I mean, it, it seems quite possible that that will have other bad effects, uh, you know, creating lots of resistance. Um, Suppose you know, they don't know. Suppose they don't know, right? They, 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 they oh, never yeah. know. They just know there's an outbreak. You know? uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess in general, uh, in, I mean, it, maybe it depends on how realistic we make the case. Um, it's a little hard for me to imagine that you could really have a program of engineering outbreaks and not have it leak in any way. And then you would have lots of, I mean, it would so lots of distrust and for the medical establishment and so on. Um, so I'm, I'm inclined to think that certain principles of informed consent can be defended even from uh, a utilitarian perspective, even if in certain fanciful cases, they, they wouldn't matter anymore. It would be outweighed. Um, for the for the opposite view, I mean, yeah, for the the sort of strong utilitarian consent is all that matters. Um, well, of course, uh, I mean that that you consent to something doesn't mean that I I have to consent to, to do it for you, right? The doctor wouldn't have to agree to uh, to infect you, um, and might not if he thinks this is going to be. Uh, you know, bad overall. Um, though it might be that that view implies that the government can't stop people who do agree to infect you from doing it, right? That's just sort of between the two of you. And um, at least if you're going to be careful afterwards about not infecting other people, then, uh, you know, that's just your, your decision. Um, so that would be, uh, that would be kind of an alternate route, I think, maybe an easier route of uh, getting to my conclusion that there's no in principle problem with this. Um, though it would be um, via appealing to, to certain, uh, via appealing to a, a kind of theoretical framework that actually I reject. Um, so that's, that's why I don't take the easier route, I guess. But. So what's interesting to me is that you don't want to answer this question purely in ethical terms. You are thinking about the social implications. Um, and one of the things that I think you've built in is this notion that those that go and get voluntarily infected um, should also get some free stuff. So in other words, they should be given um, free medical care. Um, they should be given quarantine facilities. And obviously that has some costs um, associated with it. You know, it's imagine the sort of, you're thinking about the private actors who are hurting each other. Let's say um, Jason and I organize a, a backstreet um, bare knuckle boxing fight and we you know, sign waivers and you know, knock each other's faces in and break each other's noses. Um, and we say, yeah, that's fine. You consent to that, no problem. You know, you've got harms, but you did it for whatever motives you had. And we don't really need to interrogate those motives. But when both of you arrive at the public hospital and say, please stitch us up for free at the expense of society, then maybe we recoil a little bit and go, hold on a second. I'm not so sure if we should be subsidizing your bare knuckle, you know, bashing contest. And, you know, there's an analogy with, you know, getting, you know, infected with COVID when you say, well, as society, we should pay for your treatment. It's one thing to say, well, look, if you want to go and do this on your own, and not cause an effect on others. In other words, your bare knuckle boxing fight's not spraying out into the public and you're just hitting people wildly like you would if you got infected and then carried on your life while you were infectious. But we might also think, but if you're gonna do that, you need to carry the medical costs. You need to go to a private hospital if you need it. Um, you need to have your own quarantine facility, um, you know, stay at home, locked up. Um, and that getting the state to subsidize this has these other kinds of um, financial costs and maybe moral costs. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that might be right. If, I mean, so if we take the sort of hard right util, uh, libertarian view, say um, that, well, you know, if people, if two people consent to this, then that's their business. Um, yeah, it might. Uh, I mean, it, I guess really, depending on how you flesh out that view, it might even be difficult to justify taxation and stuff to begin with. But um, more broadly, I guess we can say, yeah, we, if we want to, Particularly if we, if we think this is going to be bad for society or bad overall and we want to disincentivize this, uh, well, then we don't have to support this by offering you a quarantine facility or uh, medical, medical care or whatever. Um, you might think if we don't offer that, then it's more likely that these people who are intentionally getting infected are going to go off and infect other people. 
Um, and so you might think that in that case, we have more grounds for banning it because they're going to wind up posing a threat to, to others, um, maybe unintentionally. Um, yeah. When, when you choose who you're going to infect intentionally, um, do you just infect people who are not at high risk of mortality from the disease? Um, because it seems like the people who are at high risk of dying if they get infected, those are the people who would most benefit from being immune, right? Um, and so those people might say, well, given that it may be inevitable that I'm going to catch it eventually, assuming that a vaccine is far away, I would much rather get it under controlled circumstances, controlled mm -hmm. conditions, and perhaps get the right dose of the disease that won't be too harmful, but just enough to give me immunity. Um, but then if that's the case, if we start infecting those people, I wonder whether we're not moving into uh, reckless consent or consent for reckless procedures. So for example, let's say someone has a mosquito bite on their finger, uh, it'll heal within a day or two, but it's very itchy and they go to the doctor and they say, can you please amputate my hand? Or while you're at it, just amputate my arm. Um, I mean, the, the patient has consented, right? Uh, there is informed consent. They understand exactly what amputation is. Um, and the doctor says, well, no, I, I mean, I could just give you some cream for, for you know, to, to, I could give you some cortisone to, to stop the itch. And, and, and the patient says, no, I prefer the amputation. Um, <laughs> it seems like the doctor would be wrong to amputate their limb, um, but, but they've consented, right? And, right. And, and this seems like a similar kind of case to the person who, who, who would be very severely threatened by being infected. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree that there are, th there are these cases where someone consents to something and you, you shouldn't do it. Um, maybe that means that it's not really valid consent. You think someone couldn't possibly be, uh, you know, uh, competent and make this sort of decision or something. Or maybe you think there's some other moral principle that comes into play where they have given valid consent, but you shouldn't do it for some other reason. Um, now, if we imagine the person who is in the high risk group, um, would it be good to offer this to them? Um, in, in the case of people who are not in the high risk group, there are kind of more possible reasons, right? Um, you want the, them to volunteer so that the, uh, you know, the people in high risk groups don't have to get infected, right? You wanna build herd immunity among these other people. Um, they have non-medical reasons for uh, wanting to kind of get it over with and go out and do stuff that maybe are, are less, I mean, the people at the high risk group wanna do that too, but they also have these countervailing reasons that make these kind of less weighty as compared to the risk of infection. Um, so it, it's sort of all of the weight, if it is a, a good idea, like a rational decision for them to agree, all of the weight would have to fall on the, the medical reasons, the thought that this will be um, safer for them. Um, so if it's not, then we can say, okay, that maybe you shouldn't offer it to these people uh, on kind of social welfare grounds. But uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't offer it to people in low risk groups because there are additional reasons um, for wanting to offer it to them. On the other hand, if uh, it does make them safer, yeah, look, sorry, grandma, but you probably are going to get infected and like it's, it's better that it, it happened. Uh, you know, well, then I, I guess um, it's, it's not clear that it is reckless consent because they're doing something that makes them safer. You know, it's just that unfortunately, it's still pretty unsafe because they're just in a situation where they're really unsafe no matter what. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you you would have to be you would have to be pretty sure, I think, that this was uh, that this was really going to make people safer before you started offering it to them. Um, but if if you really were, I mean, then it's less clear to me that it is reckless consent. It's more like agreeing to a very risky surgery or a very risky, uh, you know, experimental medical treatment or something where your odds aren't very good anyway, but they do in increase your chance of survival. So. You know, if that's what you want, then let's go for it. I'm not sold on that response, though, because it, the analogy seems to be someone who goes to the doctor, gets the mosquito bite and says, my, my finger's so itchy, I want the arm off. And the doctor says, no, but there's other things we can do. And then you say to the doctor, well, I'm going to just keep going from doctor to doctor. If you don't say yes, I'm going to find someone who will. And if no one will, I will damage my arm to the point where where I will get this arm amputated. So you either 
do it now in the safest way possible, or I'm going to have to take all these other measures, which could be quite dangerous. Um, I wonder if that's not the analogy, um, because, because now you've got the old person with comorbidities who says, look, I've got to live my life eventually. I've got to get out. I'm really struggling at home. I'm very unhappy. I've got to see my grandchildren and my children. I've got to live life. Um, I'm going to do this whether or not you give me, give me the voluntary infection. It's just that if you give me the voluntary infection, you can do it. I can get sick under your care. Um, you can give me the right dosage, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky there. You might think that that, again, is, is a bit like the needle exchange case. Um, so maybe, maybe you should offer it as a, a means of harm mitigation. Um, you might worry that this will kind of incentivize people to, you know, maybe there are some people who really shouldn't be going and visiting their grandchildren. But if you offer this and make it seem like a normal thing, then they'll go and get infected. Yeah. Um, so it, it might be that for that sort of reason, you know, maybe there are, are kind of social reasons why you shouldn't offer it uh, on those grounds, um, because you think it would lead, lead to too much reckless consent from, you know, people who, uh, because it's been offered, are, are going to make bad decisions. But maybe otherwise they would have stayed home if you just told them, no, like, you need to stay home. Um, yeah, I, I, and I, I don't know, uh, I don't know how, how things would pan out empirically there. So I'd like to return to, uh, to an earlier topic. We talked about um, challenge trials for vaccines. And it seems like there are two different ways in which we could run our vaccine trials. The one is we come up with a vaccine, um, we test it on a bunch of people, and we let them go out into the world. And um, some of them are going to get infected, some of them are not. And the other way is we say, we're going to give you the vaccine, and then we're going to put COVID up your nose. Um, and that way we can sort of get a quicker sense as to how efficacious our vaccine is. We might need less, less people to run it on. We might get better data. Um, if we take your view uh, in this broader case, where in other words, without a vaccine, you think that there's good, in principle, moral reasons to let people volunteer um, for, being, um, for being infected, um, then we must think that, well, there's good similar reasons in the vaccine case. Can we go further than that and say, well, actually, there might be a moral obligation um, to run your vaccine trials in this way, that if the goods that you can achieve um, are to, let's say, shorten the amount of time uh, required to get a vaccine to market, that you could save, let's say, millions of people from infection, if you can have a, you know, a vaccine ready earlier, um, you could save, you know, let's say, thousands of lives through it. Um, Ought there to be a requirement that we run our vaccine trials in this manner? Right. Um, I'm, I'm inclined to think, uh, yeah, so two, two things, I guess. Um, one is just about the connection between controlled voluntary infection and, um, and challenge studies. Um, I, I think one, it might be that one benefit of controlled voluntary infection would be that it would make it really easy to go ahead and do challenge studies. You know, if we're going to infect you anyway, hey, do you want to take a vaccine too? And then we can, uh, you know, run these in parallel. Um, I think that uh, the arguments for controlled voluntary infection would also imply the permissibility of running challenge studies, because if anything, challenge studies seem a little easier to uh, justify ethically. I mean, you at least have the vaccine, so hopefully it's a little less risky. I'm not intending to infect you, actually. I would prefer it if you didn't get infected because the vaccine worked, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so um, I, I think for people who are interested in challenge studies, my argument should also be interesting because it probably entails the permissibility of running challenge studies. Now, uh, do these considerations entail the obligatoriness of running challenge studies? I'm inclined to think so, actually, especially under conditions like the ones we actually find ourselves, where there are plenty of people, thousands of people who have come out and said, like, yeah, I'll volunteer to be in a, in a challenge study. Like, you know, I want to contribute to this. Um, it, it seems, yeah, it, it really does seem sort of indefensible to me that for as far as what I can understand are kind of not very good regulatory reasons. Um, you, you prevent um, researchers who are willing to do this and volunteers who are willing to do this uh, from doing these things that, um, you know, might result in a vaccine being developed faster. Um, the, the only thing I think that would not be the only thing I think that would make it not be obligatory would be if it turned out that probably it actually wouldn't do very much good. 
So if it turns out that, um, you know, look, we're right now, we are manufacturing candidate vaccines. Um, we don't know which vaccines are going to work, but some of them we've already started making them. Uh, if it turns out, you know, enough people are getting infected naturally that we're going to have data on efficacy uh, pretty soon anyway, uh, before you would actually have manufactured enough doses uh, for it to make very much difference anyway. Um, by, by the time we're ready to start distributing it, we're going to know whether or not you run the challenge study. It could be that sort of the practical benefits of a challenge study are not very great, and then you wouldn't want to use it. Um, but in cases where the practical benefits of challenge studies will be, will be great, or at least seem likely to be great, uh, I think, yeah, then <clears throat> it's, it's probably... Um, it's probably a pretty bad thing that we don't allow them. So let me ask a related question. Let's assume that we've got our vaccine now and our vaccine is um, pretty damn effective. Okay. Um, it's going to give you, let's say a uh, 80% chance that if you get COVID, um, you know, you, you will, you know, not suffer any consequences from it. Um, and let's say it's got a 0.1% uh, chance that it's going to cause some other kind of health uh, detriment. Um, under those circumstances, um, would it be permissible for states to make it mandatory for you to get a vaccine? Do we think that people could be forced against their will to be vaccinated? Given right. that having mm -hmm. a lot of people vaccinated is going to help on the herd immunity front, it's not mere paternalism. It's not just because we think it's in your interest. We think it's in society's interest to have mass vaccination. If there's a serious risk, which could turn out to be the case in the U.S., for instance, that enough people are going to refuse the vaccine that uh, it would create uh, a serious danger of the disease continuing to circulate, continuing to threaten people who, who can't get the vaccine and so on. Um, that in those sorts of cases, it, it might be good to, to go ahead and mandate it. Um, in, in situations where, you know, there's gonna be enough voluntary uptake uh, anyway, and, you know, the people who refuse mostly are going to just be threatening each other and maybe maybe in that case you know it would sort of cause more problems to mandate it than it would be worth or something like that i wonder whether there's not a similar question to be asked about consent to be voluntarily um infected without the vaccine right mm -hmm. i wonder whether you're obliged to volunteer um especially if you don't have underlying health conditions um given that it has social benefits that you can't then go and get infected without knowing and, and spread the virus this way you're in quarantine, you get better and, and you no longer spread the virus. Do you think you're obliged to volunteer to get infected? Yeah, it, you might be, I think, I mean, again, it, it depends, you know, if, if you're in, uh, so maybe for instance, in Germany, it will be the case that, a pretty low portion, we're going to get a vaccine. Uh, by the time we have a vaccine, a pretty low portion of the population is going to be infected. So if you don't consent, then probably there's a very high probability that you're just never going to get infected in any way. Um, maybe in those sorts of cases, well, you know, it's not clear that there's that much of a benefit. So it depends on the, the empirical situation. But um, in a situation where uh, you, uh, there really is a good chance that you're going to be infected at some point. Um, it's just that it's going to be more dangerous for other people and maybe more dangerous for you. Yeah, I'm inclined to think that you might be obliged. Um, it will depend a little bit on what the possible costs are and what the how big the social benefits are and so on. But yeah, I mean, in, in general, I guess, if you can do something that either is beneficial to you or has a fairly small risk and that prevents much more serious risks to other people, then you might have an obligation to do it, I think. I mean, I, I think this is very interesting because I'm going to hand this over to Mark in a moment because Mark is more libertarian minded than I am. But I think libertarians would go nuts at that idea, right? So, so not only is it obligatory for me to get a vaccine, but it's, in, it's obligatory in the absence of the vaccine for me to get infected. Uh, I think, I think libert libertarians would, <laughs> would, just, would just throw up their arms. Oh, yeah. So I, I do want to be clear. I wasn't saying that it should be mandated that you get infected. I was just saying you might morally have an obligation. Uh, okay. All right. Well, if we go to moral obligation, um, it's not too far uh, a skip and a hop to mandating it, right? 
Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. There are lots of things that people are allowed to do that there, uh, there are lots of immoral things that are not prohibited and lots of obligatory things that are not mandated um, legally. Um, you get into other questions, both about, you know, consequentialist considerations and, you know, maybe more deontic considerations about what you can force people to do and stuff. So I, I think there are interesting ethical questions there, but I think that the jump from it being morally obligatory to it being um, permissible to mandate it is, it's not trivial. Yeah, to my mind, it seems like there's going to be a big difference between saying, you know, what is going to have the best consequences? Um, and what am I obliged to do? So, you know, some utilitarians have to bite this very difficult bullet, which is that they have to maximize the good, which requires them to make massive sacrifices, like donating most of their income to charity, possibly donating a kidney um, because they could save someone's life. Um, you know, so I think utilitarians might have to bite that bullet. Guys like Peter Singer might have to bite that bullet. Um, but if you think, well, no, my obligations are not to cause harm to others um, and that my duties are generally negative um, and that maybe I've got some kind of uh, Kantian altruistic duties, but you know, I have some obligations to be virtuous, but not the never ending type that the sort of maximizer has to take on board. There's going to be those differences. And as you point out, um, entrenching something in law can have all these negative consequences. So once you start to say, well, for example, you know, a good example where we think there's a difference between what's moral and what's legal, uh, we might think it's immoral um, to cheat on your wife um, or to blaspheme, but we don't think the state um, ought to you know, introduce criminal sanctions for these things. Um, and we also might think that there are things that are beyond the call of duty, so that are supererogatory. So we might praise the person who donates a kidney um, or puts themselves to the challenge trial, but not think that we're obliged to do so. And we certainly don't think that the state can force us to do that against our will. Um, so, I mean, Jason's right to point out that there are hop, skips and jumps, but there might be jumps over very firm barriers um, where we start to say, well, we can quite neatly put these things in different categories. Um, and that once we understand those categories correctly, we can see how we can draw a firm line in the sand. Well, Dustin, I want to say thank you very much for a delightful conversation. It's an important topic. Um, you know, the show kind of, we often uh, deal with things that are uh, whimsical and fun and only useful in the abstract. Um, and this is something that has very real world consequences, not just for individual choice, but for working out what um, governments ought to do.